0: it's the pete calendar show with more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in north carolina pete calendar is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time because he's a giver and now here's pete and welcome to the show what's going on thank you for listening You can hear all of the latest episodes uh, on your favorite podcasting platforms. If you need a link to find out your favorite podcasting platform, go to the Pete We have all of the links to all of the platforms there. You can also get links in the description of the podcast to all of the things like the Facebook group and the Patreon account uh, where uh, folks like, for example, David and Dennis and Jonathan and Eric and Paul and Robbie have all uh, supported the program, and I sincerely appreciate that. Uh, governor Roy Cooper's team told the Raleigh Capital Press Corps through some anonymous sourcing, <laughs> just like leaked it out, you know, that the governor is totally ready to start reopening North Carolina. That's actually what the News and Observer's editorial headline said, that uh, the governor is ready to start reopening NC. WRAL said the governor is expected to Uh, unveil his reopening plan Thursday afternoon. But at the current rate of cases and the current rate of deaths and hospitalizations, the governor's executive order, scheduled to expire next week on the 29th, it's probably going to get extended. This is also in the article. So at the same time that the governor is going to be unveiling the plan to reopen, it's probably going to be coming with... An extension of the lockdown order. So, <laughs> so, so there's that. Uh, so this is now seven weeks and uh, looks to be uh, longer, according to what the press is reporting. But we shall see what the governor says. Uh, how long it goes, nobody knows. Which means you actually have more time to take advantage uh, of the uh, totally overhauled Uh, website store for Mattress Man at mattressmanstores.com. Yeah, it's true. And you can use the Restwell discount code to get 20% off site-wide. The code is RESTWELL. So when you uh, find your mattress, which by the way They got great mattresses there. Christy and I bought our mattress from Mattress Man years ago. We love it. It's a memory foam. They have memory foam, obviously. They've got uh, inner spring mattresses, natural latex mattresses, pillow top mattresses, adjustable bases. Uh, I even have a pillow that I got from them. It's like a memory foam, squishy kind of a pillow. Oh, it's so comfortable. Love that thing. Anyway, um, you can get 20% off at the website. By using the discount code RESTWELL, all one word rest well r-e-s-t-w-e-l-l also if you're local you get free local white glove delivery everybody now they do ship uh uh nationwide and everybody gets the 120-day comfort guarantee so it ensures that you're going to love your mattress okay they want you to know that they understand what you're going through because they're going through it as well right you know, there's Chuck who owns Mattress Man. He's a small business owner as well. And uh, he knows what it's like now to not be working um, in the stores, something you've devoted, you know, all of this time and energy in your life to doing. Uh, so he understands, but he also understands the importance of having, you know, good night's sleep and trying to combat stress and anxiety. It's true. If you don't get good sleep, these things uh, wreck havoc on your body. So uh, you want a comfortable bed, and you probably recognize that now more than ever because you're spending a lot more time in and around the bed. So uh, get on over to the website mattressmanstores.com and remember the code RESTWELL for an additional 20% savings and experience the difference all at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. Recently, a team of contributors with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity published a working paper titled, A New Strategy for Bringing People Back to Work During COVID-19. And the executive summary said that a quasi-consensus has emerged among policymakers and commentators that the United States should continue to close schools and non-essential businesses until coronavirus testing and immunity is widespread. But there's a significant possibility that we are many months, if not years away, from meeting these thresholds. Um, the good news is, however, they say that a unique feature of COVID-19, it has a heavy skew towards the elderly and the near-elderly who also have other chronic diseases. And so what that means is with proper precautions and the deployment of tools, um, much of the working age population can return to work. And so this team sat down and said, we still need to develop policies and deploy innovations that'll help protect the elderly like telemedicine and address high risk populations like those in nursing homes, rehabilitation facilities, jails and prisons. But we are persuaded that much more can be done to reopen the economy today, thereby improving the lives of hundreds of millions of low to middle income Americans. My guest is Greg Girvan, and he is a research fellow with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and uh, one of the contributors to this paper. Welcome to the program. I appreciate you making time for us. How are you? Thanks so much, Pete. How are you? I am doing well. Uh, so how long of a, uh, of a process was this uh, uh, from, uh, and it's still ongoing right now, right? This is a working paper, so it's being updated continuously. But when, when did y'all get started on this?
1: Well, this really uh, got started when uh, through the uh, development of this crisis uh, due to the coronavirus, uh, as you mentioned before in our executive summary, a a quasi consensus really began to emerge that as we're approaching this peak and as we're uh, dealing with the hospitalizations and the, the number of new cases ever escalating, Uh, that uh, the health policy and uh, public health professionals were discussing, well, what is it going to take in order for us to to get back to some sense of normalcy? Uh, What is it going to take to get the economy back online? So there were numerous papers written about this, the Heritage Foundation, uh, American Enterprise Institute, uh, and numerous others were writing about this. And what became very apparent to us when we learned more and more about the virus itself and uh, the nature of what it takes to combat the virus, we we took a step back and said, well, wait a second, you know, a lot of these people are talking about, well, we need to have you know, mass testing, you know, everybody being tested, uh, numerous estimates, you know, on on the scale of millions of people needing to be tested in order to adequately, uh, you know, trace the virus and being able to see uh, how widespread it is. In addition to that, uh, n- the need for therapeutic treatments, uh, the need for a vaccine to develop, these were all Uh, things that uh, while we really hope that these things happen, we are, uh, you know, praying for those things to happen. We also understand that there is another scenario, a more pessimistic scenario that says that uh, these things may be very difficult to achieve and may never happen. You know, we may never have uh, a widespread herd immunity Uh, in the population. We may not have these antiviral treatments in the immediate term, and a vaccine may never never arrive. People have to remember that it is also a strain of coronavirus that causes the common cold, and we've never had a vaccine for that. And so uh, under this, you know, policy paradigm, you know, people are arguing that we need to have a shutdown of a, a length of time until these things occur. Well, how long are those things going to take? Is it going to be six months? It's going to be years. Is it could be two years. It could go on for multiple years. And as we've seen with the damage that has been done to the economy in just a matter of weeks, uh, we've seen, for example, the job gains we've had over a decade's time completely wiped out in four weeks. of this you know, mass shutdown across the United States. And so it's not sustainable. And these uh, different things that can really help us combat the virus are going to at least take a long time if they occur at all. And so we really looked at this whole situation. And we realized that we need to come up with a strategy that's going to reopen the economy in spite of the virus. And so that's really where uh, the the idea for this paper uh, began. And as you said, this is a a working document that we're continuing to update as we learn more about the virus and as we get more data. And that's one of the things we really need. One of the things I specialize in at FreeOp as a data specialist We have a, a real clear understanding that we need to gather more data and more information to learn more about how the virus spreads, which at risk groups are most at risk. And those things will help us inform how we can reopen the economy in a smart, intelligent way so that we continue to protect those that are most vulnerable. While restoring the livelihoods of those who are much less at risk and can return to work.
0: So, I guess then, and you outlined in the paper the optimistic versus pessimistic scenarios, and I think you pegged the odds of the pessimistic scenario at about 30%, right? Something like that. But um, what, so I, I guess we should, mm-hmm. I guess we need to define first is, what do you mean when you say reopening, just in general? Because it seems. Uh, to me that this is a point uh, maybe of bad faith debate on social media, that people want to say that the reopen term means go back to life pre-COVID-19. And is, is that what y'all envision when you say reopen the economy?
1: And this is a really good point that you bring up, because it, it really feels like commentators are propagating this idea that Um, we can only improve public health by totally shutting down the economy. And on the flip side of that, we can only really improve the economy by opening things up and, and thus we sacrifice public health. So there's this dichotomy out there, but this is a, this is really a false dichotomy. There are ways in which we can open the economy in, smart, intelligent ways that we continue to protect those who are most vulnerable. And as mentioned earlier, uh, the particular feature of COVID-19 that we can take advantage of is that it heavily skews the risk of death and the risk of uh, hospitalization skews heavily towards the elderly and especially the elderly with pre-existing uh, medical conditions. And so, if we take some steps uh, to help protect those individuals, then that leaves a, a large swath of people that um, are are otherwise healthy. They don't have these preexisting medical conditions, and for them, uh, the the vast majority of people exhibit little to no symptoms, and and so there there are that's that's really the genesis of this strategy is that um, you know number one, there is a significant possibility as you mentioned that the pessimistic scenario will will come about, and as we estimate that at thirty percent and secondly that there's this heavy skew of poor health outcomes toward the elderly and those with chronic disease and and then I would mention third that there are a number of tools for contact tracing and quarantines for these particular high-risk individuals that would allow us to selectively reopen the economy. Uh, and and we, really, this is a stepwise type of situation. We, we look at those who are the least at risk. In particular, school-age children uh, are, are at extremely low risk. To justify, for example, reopening schools and preschools and things like that, um, and we and we account for, you know, well, what if the student lives with somebody who is elderly or lives with, you know, an individual who has one of these chronic high risk conditions, and for that we make accommodations for that, where those those students should remain at home, as well as high risk teachers, elderly teachers, and staff. But for the vast majority of, of students, they can return to school. And this has uh, a, a, an important effect on the economy in a couple ways. One, of course, is that with students going back to school, uh, the, it reduces those educational disparities, right? Um, that, that, you know, the kids are getting an education. We all know that's important. But there are quite a number of Workers in our economy uh, that rely on schools essentially to um, to have those kids while they go and work. <laughs> um, they they don't have when those kids are at home. Uh, then those parents, often single parents, can't work. And so um, by by getting them back to school, a lot of those individuals, especially at the lower to middle range of the income scale. Um, can, can can go back to work. And so there are certain things that we can do, starting with those who are at the least level, least high risk and open the economy up to those individuals and then go from there as the situation develops on the ground. Uh, and kind of on the other end of the extreme, it, you know, we mentioned in this plan how, uh, you know, right now we still shouldn't open up the economy, for example, for large scale uh, events with large crowds, for example, sporting events or concerts. So we take into account, you know, which ways that the virus will most easily spread, where it presents the most danger and say, let's selectively open up the economy for those people who are the least at risk. And then like a ladder, we move up that ladder as the situation on the ground changes, it becomes safer for some of these other groups to reenter the economy. So really this dichotomy where it's an all or nothing type of deal where you either are for public health or you're for reopening the economy really is a false dichotomy.
0: My guest is Greg Gervon. He is a research fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. The website, by the way, is FREOPP. freeop, FREOPP. dot org, and you can see the paper there. And uh, for folks who may think that uh, like this is just sort of uh, you know like high level, um, oh you know open up the schools and uh, uh, you know start getting some people back to work, this thing is like uh, twenty five pages printed out for me, and <laughs> uh, you've got. Yes, number one, uh, reopen pre-K and K-12, lift stay-at-home orders for most non-elderly individuals, and then there's explanations for all of these uh, strategy recommendations, incentivize employers to deploy testing at work, and this would be the RT-PCR testing. Um, continue to prohibit large group gatherings, as you mentioned. And it it goes on, like, uh, require negative COVID-19 testing for passenger air and Amtrak travel. Grant safe harbor to states that restrict interstate travel. Prioritize testing in high-risk sectors. Um, It it goes on. I'm trying to count them. One, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, You've got, well, maybe you know. How many of these strategies do you have in total? Uh,
1: Well, it's an ever-growing list. Right. <laughs> uh, as we, you know, as we uh, and my last count, there were a dozen. I'd have to go back and, and count them up again. Yeah. But um, we we have, you know, and that's for sort of what we can do now to reopen the economy. And then we have a number of strategies to repair the damage to the economy that's already been done mm-hmm. uh, in, in later on in the paper. And so uh, we have a, a vast number of strategies to uh, as, again selectively reopen the economy to protect those who are most vulnerable by while getting the most people back to work as possible. And so, uh, really again it's a it's a it's a balanced strategy to uh, really take into account the unique features of COVID-19 and the skew towards the elderly and those with chronic conditions. While saying, look the the vast majority of the working population can return to work and do so safely and 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 on that note, too, there are a number of precautions that people can take uh, when when going back to work uh, and so and and you mentioned one of the things that we feel is really important, and that is that we we could we can incentivize employers to Do this testing for their employees, and there's a a number of reasons why that's important. Um, We believe that first of all, it will help us to, you know, make sure that those who do have the virus remain at home, that they're not spreading it. So that's the obvious benefit of doing it. But workplace testing can also accelerate reemployment, and can also, and I think this is one thing that. Uh, most people overlook, is that it can increase consumer confidence mm-hmm. in different businesses who institute this universal testing. So I know, for from, from myself personally, and I'm sure many of your listeners would agree, that if I know that there is a, a local business um, where I know everyone at that business has been tested and has tested negative, that I'm more likely to patronize that business than I am one where I, I don't know that, or, you know, th- that that's, that that's not known. Mm-hmm. And so the, the issue here though, is that, and we talked specifically about these particular RT PCR tests, and these are different from the tests that test for antibodies. That's probably the other one that you've heard about um, where, uh, the, the RT-PCR tests are more accurate, but they're also more expensive. And that's why we believe that you know, Congress offering a $300 per test tax credit um, can, can really help uh, ramp up that testing. And, and both methods of testing, I'll just mention this real quick, are important. Uh, they're, they're both uh, definitely needed because they help us identify different things. So the antibody detection, the serology test, can help us indicate whether somebody has had past exposure to the virus. Um, And and so that will help us to identify individuals with those neutralizing antibodies, and it helps facilitate contact tracing and surveillance. Now, the value of the the RT-PCR test, which is checking for the viral RNA, is that it, it informs you know, individuals of their infection status in the present, whether they have the infection now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it will help us to inform, you know, how we manage that patient's uh, uh, symptoms and, and inform our actions needed to prevent transmission from, from that individual. So both tests are needed, but right. the, the, the RT-PCR tests have a much lower rate of false negatives, so it's a more accurate test. But, again, it's more expensive, and so that's why, um, especially for a lot of these businesses that are reopening, that are really cash-strapped right now, uh, offering that, that tax credit really helps to cover the entire cost of the test.
0: Is that the test that takes the swab and, like, uh, take, like goes all over that's your correct. brain or something, like, touches your brain? I think yeah, <laughs>
1: it's it's the na- it's the nasal swab. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, um, but cause... yeah, the serology test, the antibody test, is a blood test, whereas the RT PCR test is a, is a nasal swab test.
0: So, w- this is also based on an assumption, right? That um, that once you have the antibodies, that you are essentially immune, that you're not going to get it again. And I'm seeing stories that come out, and I, I again I don't know who to trust. It seems like nowadays, but um, uh, I see stories that people are essentially relapsing, or they're having another round with the COVID nineteen. And so, isn't this an assumption right now that once you get it, you're going to be okay? You won't get it again. That's is that an assumption on our part right now?
1: Uh, that's what uh, many people believe, and. And it's not completely unfounded because this is typically how the body's immune si- system operates. Where uh, if, if a person, you know, contracts a virus, then they develop antibodies to it, and then those antibodies become neutralizing. That is the entire uh, rationale for vaccination. Mm-hmm. Because what what you're essentially doing is you're injecting into a person either an inactivated or um, a a dead version of that virus, and then your body mounts an immune system response to it. The the particles of the virus or what have you uh, don't have any chance to infect you, but it still mounts the immune response where you develop those antibodies that are then protective for the future. That's why vaccines work so well. But We've seen in South Korea, for example, that there have been studies showing how patients who have recovered from from the disease have tested positive for possible reinfection. And the thing is, most people don't realize that that this is not really unprecedented, that this does happen with other viruses. Take, for example, HIV. Mm -hmm. People can possess large quantities of anti-HIV antibodies, in their blood, but it has no effect on the progression of the virus in terms of whether a person develops AIDS or not. And so, uh, you know, people develop antibodies to the common cold as well, like I mentioned, which is another type of coronavirus, but because the that particular coronavirus mutates and changes all the time, those antibodies are are no longer protective in the future. And so, we have to take that into account and realize that, you know, this is not something that's really new. Um, we, we do believe that based on the data that we have, that antibodies are likely to be at least partially protective, which is a good thing, but absent complete protection, you're not going to be able to completely rely on herd immunity in order to prevent the spread widespread through the, through the population, like you have with various vaccine programs that we have. Uh, you know, the reason why a disease like polio doesn't pop up very often is because there's herd immunity in the population where most of the people have been vaccinated for it. And so it doesn't have the opportunity to spread through a person's contacts. But with, with this situation, with what we're seeing, at least in the preliminary data, is that there is a possibility that uh, an antibody response to SARS-CoV-2, this particular novel coronavirus, is not completely protective. And again, that's another impetus for the plan that we offer, uh, because that is a real possibility, and we can't rely on all of these things and say that you know we're going to be protected there's a possibility we won't be so we need to have a plan in case we won't be fully protected
0: more with greg gervon in a moment first if you are scrambling to set up or even improve your business website especially now uh it can be overwhelming for any of us it was for me when i was building out my website and stuff and uh That's why I recommend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design to help you with logos, graphics, photos, an online store, whatever you're looking to do, along with search engine optimization, website maintenance and security for professional services, corporate, small business, entrepreneurs, all of it. He does it all. Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user friendly, both for your customers, but also for you so you can adapt quickly. He'll give you the tools and empower you to do that. Schaeffersmith.com. That's Schaeffersmith.com. Greg Gervan is a research fellow at the Foundation for Research and Equal Opportunity. The authors, you being one of them of the paper, note that the death rate from confirmed cases is estimated at about 1.38%. Death rates from unconfirmed cases, about uh, less than half of that, 0.66 appears. Now, Uh, These numbers and this data is constantly changing, and I know a lot of people use the changing data to attack uh, sort of the, the the lethality or the dangerousness of this uh, of this virus. Um, so speak for a moment if you can about the, the models that you guys use. how confident are you in the data that you're looking at when you uh, when you assess this stuff and you try to cobble together a strategy because it seems like there's half of the country saying uh, that it's it, it's it's a hoax. It's not even gonna uh, be more lethal than the flu. Right, and th- and this
1: really highlights the difficulty of being able to project really anything into the future in terms of things like death rates, because we really don't know how many people have the virus to begin with, and, and there have been numerous studies looking at this to try to determine that, but nobody really knows for sure, and so a lot of the talk of you know different death rates and everything is simply what we know at the time. But I mean, people have to have the understanding that this is a, a, a number that's changing all of the time. And honestly, we're not going to really know what that the true death rate is from it until all of this is past us. And, uh, you know, and the infection rate is either extremely low or, or not at all. And, we're able to kind of go back into the data, and this again is why it, testing is really important. Uh, but also, ramping up that testing is is going to be very difficult. Uh, if you look at um, again, the cost of the RT-PCR test is, is is high, and and so that's you know difficult to scale up really quickly. Um, it's more labor intensive to administer that particular test as opposed to the the conventional blood tests for for antibodies. And and look, we have a lot of companies uh, in our country that are really trying to ramp up testing. Abbott Laboratories has been at the forefront of this in trying to develop more of these tests. Um, As of mid-April, they were, uh, you know, we were testing around 100,000 individuals per day. Um, But, you know, those tests have to be administered in clinical settings like a doctor's office or an urgent care clinic and so that the, there are various limitations that we have on the ability to really test across the board and so we're just not going to know how many people have had the virus and therefore we just don't know what the denominator is in calculating the death rate and, and so again we have to, I think, step back and have a little bit of humility with this whole process and understanding you know, knowing how much we don't know, right that there is a lot of information that we still need to gather that we still need to learn about the virus itself and the nature of how it works as well as the effects that it has on the population and on specific groups. There's things that we're learning every day and in the scientific community has been uh, impressively mobilized to really dig into this and try to find out all that we can. But it's going to take time. Uh, people, you know, need to realize, for example, in developing a vaccine, that probably the, the the greatest success we've had in developing a vaccine to a virus has been for Ebola. And that took five years to develop that vaccine, and so that's the kind of time frame that's probably more realistic. A lot of people have been very optimistic and saying, "You know, hopefully we can develop a vaccine for this in a year, and a year and a half from now." And we have to understand that that's not been the historical precedent in developing vaccines. They often take uh, a greater number of years, if they come at all. We have been working to develop a vaccine for HIV for decades now, and we still don't have one. And so preparing for that, you know, it's it's about, uh, as the saying goes, hope for the best, plan for the worst. And uh, that's certainly the case with vaccines. It's certainly the case in trying to determine, you know, what the, the fatality rate to this is, because again, there's just so much we don't know, and it's gonna take time for our researchers to gather all that data and information.
0: Greg Gervon is a research fellow with the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. The website is freopp free Uh and uh, one of the contributors to uh, a, a, a paper, a working paper, titled The New Strategy for Bringing People Back to Work During COVID-19. And, um, and I don't know, maybe this is sort of too philosophical for you, but you could take a stab at it if you'd like. Um, I'm just watching sort of the debate uh, around a lot of the central questions that you're talking about today and that you all talk about in this paper. And uh, this essentially is an assessment of risk. And you're talking about Deaths that people are going to die either from COVID-19, they will die from, you know, suicide in a, in another depression, they will die, uh, 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 they'll li- not live as long, so they'll die earlier, or they'll die from not being diagnosed because they couldn't get in to, you know, see their doctors for elective procedures, right? There are all of these types of essentially ethical questions, and... I am not (laughs) very confident that we as a society can actually have this discussion. Uh, I took philosophy classes in college and kids who signed up for those classes could not take uh, handle those discussions. So I don't know that uh, our society is is well equipped to do this. Are you confident that it is?
1: Uh, you, you know, you bring up some really good points, I think in, in kind of a larger bucket of what you're talking about, uh, in terms of what the, um, sort of the effects down the line are going to be, uh, th- that's something that we really do need to reckon with. And you mentioned things like suicides. I would put in there in, in a larger category, uh, deaths of despair, yeah, Right. So. Right. You're talking about suicides, talking about deaths due to, um, you know, overdosing uh, on, on drugs. You talk about deaths related to alcoholism. Um, there's uh, an, an, and then you look outside of those deaths of despair and you look at how people are delaying care that they need in order to um, to, to remain healthy. So there's that issue as well. Um, so, you know, there's additional research that's been done just on the effects of unemployment and the fact that, uh, a one percentage point rise in us unemployment rate is associated with a 6% increase in the chance of dying within the next year. Uh, you know, the, in heart failure patients alone, unemployment is associated with a 50% higher risk of death. These are, these are very real. Effects that are going on as a result of us shutting down our own economy, Um, and and one of the things I think that needs to be mentioned as well is, I we've heard a lot of criticism saying, well, if you're going to partially reopen, for example, partially reopening schools, you know, what about those children who do live with somebody who's, you know, elderly or has, uh, you know members of their family that have underlying medical conditions. And I sympathize with that. I live in a household where we have family members that have uh, underlying medical conditions that would make it uh, risky for our children to go back to school. So uh, I, I understand that, that perspective completely. And, you know, people have criticized saying, well, you're creating a disparity there that, you know, those kids who can go back to school, are gonna be much better off than those who cannot. And w- the the argument that we make is that by continuing the economic lockdown with no effort to reopen at all, can have even worse effects on disadvantaged communities, on low-income households, especially those households where the parents need their children to go back to school in order to work. And th- the effects of that unemployment uh, those disparities are are much worse than the disparities of reopening the economy partially to those who are at lower risk.
0: Right. And, the and dis- so, y- and, it- yeah, I was going to say just the disparity exists right now. You've got parents that are financially capable of staying home with their kids and homeschooling. And there are others that cannot do that. Right. So there's already an, a disparity. That's
1: right. That's right. And so we, we have those things going on already. And so what, when, when you talk about reopening in the economy, what is worse? That you have maybe some disparities going on in terms of you know, children with their education or the fact that there's now 22 million people who have filed for unemployment benefits who, who are now out of work. And that affects everybody. That isn't just affecting those individuals. It's affecting every segment of the economy. It's affecting everyone. And, and so, and then again, going back to what you what you mentioned before in your question, when talking about whether we're able to have this conversation, that's really what this paper is about: is saying we need to have this conversation. That yes, there are people dying from the coronavirus, and and it's. And it's horrible. We need to do things to protect those who are most at risk. But there are other people that are uh, at great risk due to basically our response to the virus and the fact that the response has been a sledgehammer rather than a scalpel. And, And that's the argument that we make is that we have to take into account the unintended consequences as well. And and, and realize that reopening the economy is going to help a lot of people who really aren't at risk of uh, severe illness from coronavirus, but they are at risk because they are not at work because they are not receiving healthcare benefits because they are not getting the healthcare that they need. Mm-hmm. And so again, really, this is all about balance and this plan is intended in part to be a wake-up call and say, you know, there is a whole segment of the population that can go back to work. We're not allowing them to, and it's having a severe negative effect on them as well.
0: Greg Gervon, Research Fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity uh, and a contributor to the working paper titled A New Strategy for Bringing People Back to Work During COVID-19. Is there anything else you'd like to add that you think is important or interesting to note here that we haven't covered? And I know I'm asking that uh, knowing that we haven't covered. (laughs) about probably You probably still got 60% more of this paper that we haven't even gone through. But is there anything (laughs) that you want to leave people with? We we
1: could talk about this paper probably for hours. There are a, a, quite a number of of provisions that we talk about here, uh, where we can you know really open up more of the economies of people and do it in a way um, that that still protects people. I mean everything from uh, schools to you know re envisioning how we manage the strategic national stockpile to, for emergency preparedness. Or, you know, the, the idea of accelerating highway projects now that the roads are essentially empty, that that's a way to get people back to work. There are so many different provisions in here. But I think the thing that uh, we I, I would really like to leave your listeners with is really th- this 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 virus is unprecedented. It's something that the, that the world has not dealt with in over 100 years. And we can learn from history and learn from, you know, pandemics like the 1918 Spanish flu. But we also have to rely on new evidence. And we have to realize that the ways in which this virus is different and take advantage of the ways in which it is different to um, not only combat the virus, but to help people get back to work. We have to learn from our history, but we can't be wedded to it. And so uh, in, in, instead, we if we focus on the specific biology of the virus and we focus on the evidence that we have at hand, then we can choose better options both to improve public health and to reopen the economy and, and, and really blow through that false dichotomy that you have to choose one or the other. We can do both. If we take some smart measures to protect those most at risk and get those who are at low or or no risk back to work.
0: Yeah, and uh, for people who are demanding that local officials have some sort of a plan, I would recommend that you send them this link. If you are in the business of recommending <laughs> to politicians what they could do, what, what steps need to be taken, uh, give them the link to the uh, the freeop.org site here so they can, uh, they can look at it. And, hey, I- I'm sure you guys won't mind if they pass it off as their own um, uh, as long as this stuff starts uh, getting implemented.
1: Absolutely. The plan is available at freeop.org. That's F-R-E-O-P-P dot O-R-G.
0: Greg Gervon, Research Fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, And uh, I hope to touch base with you again uh, in the future, and we'll see how uh, some of this plan gets implemented.
1: Thanks so much, Pete. Have a great one.
0: Thanks. You too. Current events have impacted all of us in many different ways. And uh, if you have been one of the people who have been looking to buy or sell your house, or maybe you've even just been thinking about postponing it uh, just for another few weeks or something, either way, Rowena Patton looks forward to guiding you through your next real estate transaction. Buying or selling, she's the only agent I would call. Why not call her today with your home buying or selling questions and And she'll be happy to talk with you. She and her all-star powerhouse team will not apply any pressure to you just to get answers, to find out, like, what is the market looking like? Can people actually buy and sell homes uh, right now? Spoiler alert, they can. So what does that process look like and how does Rowena help you through it? You could just start with a video chat video consult with Rowena. Just give her a call at 333-4483. Uh, I know Christy and I have been discussing uh, the importance now that all of our amenities at the apartment complex are all turned off. Um, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense for us to be in an apartment building any longer if we're not ever going to get to use the gym. Not like I was using the gym a lot anyway, but you know, if I'm going to pay for it, I like, the, uh, I like the thought that I might at some point use it. <laughs> Give Rowena Patin a call, 333-4483, because I can put exercise equipment in a house and not use it, too. MountainHomeHunt.com. And start packing. So the governor of North Carolina is preparing plans this week to reopen the North Carolina economy, and an announcement on his proposed path ahead could come as early as Thursday, says the Raleigh and Charlotte Observers editorial board. They really need to figure out. It's just the McClatchy editorial board, because they combined the two boards, you know? They, they've harnessed the brain power of two editorial boards. And actually, it's amazing, because you put them together, and... You actually got worse content. Anyway, so there's some pressure on Cooper, they write. Neighboring governors have taken aggressive steps to loosen and remove stay-at-home restrictions. And reopen advocates want the same to happen here. We hope and expect Cooper to be thoughtful in balancing commerce and public health. It's worked for him and North Carolina so far. Has it? Has it really? I mean, you will just state that as if that's like that that's proof. But has it? just cuz you say something doesn't make it true even though he's great and he's done it all so well the observers editorial board does have they do have some recommendations <laughs> so even though he's go he's doing such a fantastic job totally awesome chief we do have some recommendations for you just in case you know if you want to take it under advisement it's so funny the way they uh, approach the people that they admire and respect and love and swoon in front of. It's amazing the the way they interact and offer recommendations. They do the uh, the fluff here first, you know. Oh, we love you so much. We love you so much. You're so great. You're, you're doing such a bang-up job. Uh, but there there are some things that you could work on. First, they say, Cooper needs to clarify what his stay-at-home order currently allows and forbids. <laughs> He's doing such a great job balancing it all. But we don't really have any idea what it all means because there's a lack of clarity in what his orders do and don't do. <laughs> so if he could just clarify that for us, um, and it should explain plainly where we stand, which might surprise some people, he says, uh, or they say. Right. So this is the idea that, oh, see, observers, editors, they know where we really stand. You people don't. And so the governor just needs to, he just needs to say it more clearly, and then everybody will agree with us. This is one of the uh, arguments I saw years ago and it's once you see it you can never unsee it and it's usually coming from the left but the right does it too it's this argument that you just don't know the information you see and once you knew the information that i know you would totally agree with me it's not that people are looking at the same information and arriving at different conclusions And there are, you know, multiple reasons and layers of reasons why that might be the case. No, no, no. This is simply because um, you just don't have all of the information you see. And if you had it like I do, you would agree with me. Cooper, they go on to say later to this point, has allowed counties to adopt stricter rules than the state. And we think that should continue. And I'm okay with that, by the way. They advise Cooper to use metrics to make decisions, which I believe the governor has said uh, he is going to do, and I fully support using data and metrics to do that as well. Yes, a Cooper spokesperson told the editorial board on Wednesday that the governor and his coronavirus task force are working with health and business leaders to determine those metrics, which will include personnel, testing, and equipment needs. Whatever benchmarks they land on, the metrics should be made clear up front by the governor and DHHS officials, and people should be able to track how they're counties are progressing and uh, going to be reopening. That will take transparency, which has been problematic for a governor and DHHS that recently tried to obscure public death certificate information. So great job, Governor, doing a bang up job here. Uh, Fantastic work. We we, we so applaud you and appreciate you. Keep doing it. But if you don't mind, could you be a little bit more transparent in, you know, divulging the data and the metrics that you're using, that you say you're using in order to reopen the state, which you say you want to do. <laughs> oh, my God. See, this is what I mean. Man, you guys get you baby these Democratic leaders as if I, I mean, I know why it's so I know why this occurs. OK, it's because in any kind of battle, you are less likely Uh, to throw your allies under the bus right you're you're not going to sacrifice your ally and chuck them overboard um, just because uh, they've uh, committed some transgression because you recognize the value of their power or what they bring to the team and you need them in the fight so when you're having this culture war or political war whatever it is you're having you're not going to just start you know throwing people overboard for for any transgression you're going to keep your team in place especially if the member of your team is the governor, right? They're not going to throw him overboard. They're not going to come at him too hard because this could cost him the election. Seriously. That's what, I mean, if you criticize the governor too much and he starts becoming sort of the focal point of anger, he could lose the election. They know this. Everybody knows this. Same thing with Trump, right? Everybody is looking for the political positioning here. And nobody knows what it's going to be, which is creating a lot of this paralysis, they go on to say, North Carolinians need to understand more than the public health reasons behind stay-at-home orders. They need to know and understand the path that leads out of these woods. Whoa, 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 wait now. Hang on a second. You guys now sound like a bunch of these right-winger reopen nuts, right? That's what you guys have been... This is what you guys have been attacking the reopen and see folks for. They want restrictions lifted. They want the order to end, Right? And you guys have been attacking them as trying to kill people and uh, choosing money over lives and GDP over lives and all this false framing of the issue. And now that the governor's like, well, I'm going to put together a plan, you know, that he's basically been shamed into having to craft. And by the way, there's some reporting out there today that uh, his task force doesn't even have any business people on it. So he's just talking to bureaucrats and some industry people, uh, association, industry association chiefs. Nobody knows who's on this task force. Nobody knows who's making these decisions and nobody knows what the data is that they're using to make them. That's the problem. That's the problem. How can you be prepared uh, to lead when you don't even share the information you are using to make these decisions. You're asking people to sacrifice a lot and you're not telling them uh, what the data is uh, that supports the need to do so. It's just not good leadership. It's mismanagement is what, mismanagement in a crisis, which once again, Cooper does have a bit of a history there. Are you prepared for disaster? Are you prepared for catastrophes? Did this, uh, all of this COVID uh, outbreak, did it highlight the areas where you need to improve in your preparedness plan? Do you need some advice? Send a text over to my friend Tim at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. He's got a number here set up just for us, 565-2497, 565-2497. Send him a text and uh, he can talk with you uh, uh, via the text messaging about uh, what your preparedness plans uh, need to include, how to go about setting that up. If you have uh Questions about any of the stuff he's got on his website, oldgrouch.com. He'll take an order over the text line. Also, uh, you can ask him about any items. Um, It's an old school, traditional military surplus store with a mix of modern and vintage items. And uh, he's online at oldgrouch.com. He's also been downtown, you know, 30 plus years. His dad started the business in downtown Clyde. And um, they're across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. So Hopefully, if the governor's order allows us to uh, go back to work somehow in some way, shape, or form, we'll be able to get back into his store, oldgrouch.com. In the meantime, oldgrouch.com. And tell him you heard it here. Of course, he'll know because you're sending him a text (laughs) if you send him that text. All righty. So uh, out of time for today, the governor is going to be supposedly giving us some details. We'll bring that to you tomorrow, probably, from his press conference. And uh, once again, if you like the content here, uh, please think about subscribing to the podcast. I appreciate that. That's the most helpful thing you can do. Uh, you can also go to the com. get all of the links to everything you need, the com. Thank you everybody for your support. Uh, talk to you later and don't break anything while I'm gone.